0: Well, I'm delighted to have a few moments to talk to the um, lawyer and memoirist, Philippe Sands. Welcome, Philippe. Um, so your book, East West Street, has been enormously successful, um, winning the Bailey Gifford Prize. Um, what, what motivated you to write it, and who were you writing it for?
1: It's an accidental book, in a sense, that was catalyzed by an invitation to give a lecture in an obscure university, in an obscure part of the town of the world, in the Ukraine, in the city of Lviv. And if I hadn't received an invitation to deliver a lecture on the work that I do as an academic and as a lawyer on cr- crimes against humanity and genocide, I wouldn't have gone to Lviv. I wouldn't have asked my mother whether there, there were any documents that related to my grandfather's past. He was born there in 1904. I wouldn't have met the people that I did when I arrived, and I don't think I would have opened the door. So it's not a book that I sat in a room and thought, what shall I write next? Mm. Um, I think what it responded to was something, a sort of inner feelings and questions that related to my professional activity as an academic and as a lawyer, and to personal questions about my family, so it was issues waiting to bubble up, and the door was opened by an unexpected invitation.
0: Yes, so that's an interesting um, coming together of your um, academic life and your and your personal life, I suppose. And my next question was going to be um, to what extent. Um, do East West Street and your work specifically as a lawyer prosecuting war crimes complement each other? And are the same feelings involved in both?
1: So I've long thought that what a human being does in her or his daily life is in some way informed by their own past and the pasts of their parents and their grandparents and so on and so forth. In other words, we are product and the consequence of a whole long history and it must be the case that my career choice in the law to go on matters international that raised issues of historic wrongdoing must in some conscious or subconscious way have been connected to my own family past that seems to me now pretty obvious and pretty established and I think that That sense of the relationship between the personal and the professional stroke intellectual is a seam that in my world of law, you're not encouraged to open up. Mm. Um, Mm. So to be very practical about it, working with a wonderful editor in New York, Victoria Wilson, using the word I in something written by an international lawyer is... Not encouraged. Sure. That's understatement. So I really had to be pulled kicking and screaming in the context of the writing of this book to introduce myself into the book. And in introducing myself into the book, I necessarily had to introduce my family and my family's story and the points of connection were essentially teased out I wanted to write about it and I didn't want to write about it because mm-hmm. it's been trained out of me mm. over 25-30 years not to open that door sure. and so what happened here with the help of a wonderful editor was that door was opened but it was not an easy door to go through which is why it took so long to write.
0: And has that door remained open? Have you, have you now closed the door? Because those are very powerful feelings to have to deal with I suppose.
1: I think it's too soon to know whether that door is closed. I suspect it's impossible to close the door. I'm still in the period, it's about a year and a half after the book came out, and I've been surprised in a very nice way as to the reception of the book. But it has, in a day-to-day way, taken over my life in terms of the number of engagements that I've had to talk about it, to write about it, to reflect upon it. And so my day jobs... As an academic as a teacher at the university and doing cases have continued but a sort of le- lesser level of intensity and i think now i'm just reaching the point i'm writing a sequel and it's just reaching the point as to how much that door is kept open my suspicion is that it's a significant turning point in my in this sort of direction yeah. that i've taken and it will be very difficult if not impossible to go back to the world I occupied before, although it's a world I feel really happy to have been a part of and which is very much still, and will continue to be forever, a part of me, the world of university, the world of being in a courtroom. Yes. But a new world has opened up. and sure. and, and it's an interesting world precisely because it reunites two parts of my life in a way that previously had not happened.
0: Sure, yes. So I'm interested in the world of the courtroom. Our series is not only about commemoration, but how it plays in reconstruction and um, reconciliation. And of course the law is adversarial, um, and I wonder whether you feel it does in a sense um, militate against um, reconciliation, so the law kind of gets in the way of these things.
1: There's a bundle of really complex issues that you've raised with that interesting question, and it really goes to the heart of what is the function of a trial. I mean, you know, at one level, when I was at university studying law, we were told that a trial was just about dispensing justice and applying the law to a fact in a sort of mechanical way that led to an outcome, acquittal, punishment, whatever. But, but having been involved in that world now for 30 years, I've come to see that trials have multiple functions. One of those functions is that a trial is a place in which stories are told Mm -hmm. and told in a public space. And so they contribute to a narrative and that narrative about certain historical facts then enters into public consciousness and works its magic in different ways. And so it's possible to conceive of a trial and particularly an international trial as a commemorative moment. If commemoration is about focusing on something that has happened in the past and telling a story or a set of stories about it, then that's what an international trial is in part, although it's not what its purpose is. And I've come to see that my function, either as a counsel in a case or now increasingly sitting as an arbitrator or a judge in a case, is to be a facilitator to a set of telling of stories – And commemorating or not certain events. So all that to say, my sense of what a trial is for has evolved now. And I've come to realize, for example, the Nuremberg trial, which is a large part of East West Street, actually fulfilled a whole raft of different social functions that I hadn't been aware of in quite the way I have become aware of since writing the book.
0: Sure, and I think you you make the point in the book that whatever the outcome of a trial, simply stating the evidence can be very emotionally satisfying, just hearing the story said out loud.
1: So there are moments in the Nuremberg trial that are absolutely, I now realise, revolutionary. For example, the use of photographs. Mm -hmm. That had never happened before. Telling the story of what had happened, either through photographs or through moving images. And there's a moment in the trial in December 1945 where they play film footage of what British-American troops had found at Bergen-Belsen. And if you read the narrative accounts by wonderful writers, um, Janet Flanner uh, for The New Yorker, Martha Gellhorn writing for various American magazines, you get a sense of how that moment in a courtroom is taken is introduced and reflected in pieces written for the grand public. And it begins to affect public perceptions, not only of the moment of the trial, but of what happened several years earlier. And so I've become completely fascinated how a single moment, a single morning in a trial can be transformative of public perceptions Mm. of both the purpose of the trial and what happened earlier. And I remember one of the people that I interviewed was in court on that day, a remarkable Lady called Robbie Dundas, who happened to be the daughter of the presiding judge, Jeffrey Lawrence. And as I sat here, as I'm sitting with you, asking her questions about her recollections, she remembered um, footage being shown mm. and the overwhelming impact it had in that courtroom, almost as a sort of theatrical space. And yes. so, so in that sense, the trials become vehicles for much broader social purposes.
0: I remember that moment in the book, because I think she said that she she couldn't get out of her mind How many years it was later, decades later, the the, uh, exhibits of tattooed skin.
1: She, it was amazing. I mean, I'm sitting with her, it must have been 2012, 2013. These were events of 70 years ago. Mm. She goes off to get her little notebook, and she's written things in her notebook, but her memory is absolutely perfect. And she describes, without the assistance of her notebook, being in that courtroom that morning, seeing shrunken skulls and human skin, and we carry on in the conversation. At one point, she's getting... It's having an effect on her. She says, you know, I still hate the Germans. And 70 years later, an articulate, highly intelligent, decent person who was so deeply affected by a single moment in a trial that she happened to sit on that it has... Uh, touched her for the rest of her life. It yeah. was extraordinary. To, it was extraordinary to witness being with such a person Sure, as she recalled. It was really special.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, I yeah, I can only begin to imagine. So that's very interesting about the longevity of these um, memories. I was going to ask you whether you think that Remembrance Commemoration um, has a sell-by date, whether there's a point at which, you know, it's enough is enough. So for example, we're just about, we're coming into the last year of the centenary commemorations of the First World War. We've had a lot of the First World War since 2014. Um, Do you think Remembrance has a sell-by date?
1: Well, it's interesting. You're, I mean, just participating in this wonderful day today has made me, of course, in preparation, think a lot about the three questions you ask us to focus on, which was a sort of helpful exercise. And so, where I came out, I'm not against commemoration. But every act of commemoration has unintended consequences. Is I think, the central point of where I come out. And if you commemorate one thing, you don't commemorate something else. Mm-hmm. And you tend to emphasize the significance of one thing rather than another thing. Just to give an example, um, which i shared also uh, today, I served on a, an advisory council to the Holocaust Day Memorial Trust events preparation of... Uh, the memorialization of the Holocaust, the the killing of the Jews between 33 and 45. And I was told that on that day, they also commemorate other acts of killing. And I asked the question, how do you choose which ones you're going to commemorate? And they said, "Oh, we've got a foreign office formula to deal with that. And I said, "Oh, what's that? They said, well, it has to be after 1945. Pause, that's helpful because it means they don't have to deal with the Armenians. They don't have to deal with colonialism. They don't have to deal with slavery very convenient and secondly there has to have been an international court ruling that the act which occurred is characterized in law as a genocide mm-hmm. so I said okay let me understand this that means you will commemorate the killing of 8,000 people at Srebrenica in the 1990s in the form, in Bosnia because the Yugoslav tribunal said that was a genocide But of the 3 million people killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo between 1998 and 2003, you say nothing? Correct. So, what does that tell us? I mean, it tells us a lot about, you know, uh, hierarchies of commemoration. And it basically says 8,000 lives in Bosnia are worth a great deal more than 3 million lives in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And from that, you can... Extrapolate all so sorts of other things. It's, yeah. it, I mean, commemoration is politicized, and commemoration has unintended consequences by creating hierarchies of perception. I mean, if you take the United Kingdom, I've spent a lot of time immersed in what Germany has and has not done, but where is the commemoration by the United Kingdom of its own colonial slave-running legacy?
0: Well, no Quite. quite it doesn't exist. Quite.
1: quite so, uh, the question of how and what we commemorate I think is a crucial question
0: completely um, last question um, at the end of East West Street and this is, this intrigued me when I wrote my review of it um, you described going to the pits outside Lviv or Lemberg um, into which the um, Jews of the uh, town had been shot and at that point you say you understand um, what, what was it you understood at that moment
1: So the book could be des- the book could be described as being a book about identity and who are we? Are we primarily individuals or members of a group? And the two legal concepts, crimes against humanity and genocide, if you like, oppose those two different senses of being. Crimes against humanity is essentially about protecting individuals. Genocide is essentially about protecting groups. And intellectually, throughout the book, I am with Lauterpacht in his struggle for the protection of individuals and giving primacy to recognising that every individual human being, irrespective of race, religion, national identity, whatever it is, is entitled to minimum protection. But the reality is that being at a place in which um, a private place unmarked by public recognition, there's a private marker, but no public marker, three and a half thousand bodies remain to this day, including members of my grandfather's own family and members of Lauterbach's family, the feeling is so overwhelming in an emotional sense of connection and kinship with the people who are there, that I realised, of course Lemkin was onto something. We cannot. The law has to recognise our feelings of association yeah. with group. And and essentially what I'm saying is that for whatever however much I want to intellectualise my recognition of what Lauterpacht is trying to do the reality is that Lemkin was right and there's no getting away from it.
0: Yeah, and I think that that comes across very strongly in the book because you create this network of people, of rememberers. So it's written by you. In a sense, it's a joint effort as well. It's so many people's memories coming together.
1: And, 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 and the memories don't have a hierarchy. No one memory is more significant than another memory. Everyone's sense of perception plays into it. And I'm struggling throughout... To, to sort of weigh up my reaction to these memories. I mean, including the memories of the children and grandchildren of perpetrators. Yes. Which, you know, I had, it just had never occurred to me to imagine what it would be like to be Nicholas Frank, age seven, in a school playground, being ribbed by your mates because your dad's about to be hanged that day. So you just pause and imagine what that must be like for a seven-year-old kid. That's his Holocaust. Um, And, of course, it creates the reactions that it creates, Nicholas Frank. And you juxtapose that with the reactions of his former friend, Horst Wächter, uh, who thinks that despite his father's involvement as a governor and a deputy of Hans Frank, his dad was a great guy who was trying to do the right thing. Well, I want to hear about that. You know, I'm struggling, uh, you know, particularly as I write the sequel, to try to understand with a decent eye what it is that Horst is going through, what Horst lost in 1945, his honourable desire to find the good in his father if he possibly can and so his memories of that period have no less value or significance than mine and his effort to commemorate his father is not an illegitimate act, it's part of The story of human being and uh, of human existence. And so I'm very careful in writing East Westry to try, not totally successfully, to strip out my my sense of what's right and what's wrong and leaving the reader to form their own view. But of course, the the organisation of the material and and the style of the writing, I suppose, imposes a sense of direction and nudge. But I felt people needed to hear their views of people I might not necessarily agree with yeah. because those, who's to say those views are any less valid than mine they're not, they're not